Let me see you put them up. Reach the skies, touch the stars up above, cause it's one time for the underdog. One time for the underdog. If you watch Narcos on Netflix, you're gonna like this sit down because I sit down with the two DEA agents that took down Pablo Escobar. And some of the questions, especially the last question, I ask in this episode, who killed Pablo Escobar? I presented them the three different conspiracies that we've heard about. You gotta hear what their answer is at the end. Now, I wanna give you some stats if you do not know who Pablo Escobar was and what he did. Here's some stats. This is in the 80s and the 90s. In the 80s and the 90s, Pablo Escobar was responsible for 80% of the cocaine traffic worldwide. According to Forbes magazine that they came out in the early 90s, they said his net worth was somewhere around $30 billion. Well, when, when they announced his net worth was $30 billion, his son contacted Forbes and laughed and said, you're out of your mind. It was much more than that. At that time, he was the seventh richest man in the world. The man sold so much cocaine and had so much cash that he spent $2,500 a month buying rubber bands just to hold up the cash. There's still billions of dollars of cash still, till today, still, till today stashed all over Colombia. Rats ate a half a billion dollars of his fortune every year. He once burned $2 million to keep his daughter warm. He once offered to pay off the national debt of Colombia of $10 billion. Again. I, Pablo Escobar, am offering the government to pay off your national debt of $10 billion and they obviously declined. When Pablo dated his wife, he was 24 years old first time and his, daughter, his wife was 13 years old. In total, he owned roughly 800 homes and villas. 15 tons of cocaine was sold a day, that's 30,000 pounds per day. In his house, he built 20 lakes. According to 60 Minutes, he was making $420 million a week and there was eventually a $10 million hit on Pablo Escobar. And having said that, this character we just talked about, Pablo Escobar, these gentlemen were responsible for leading the DA team to finally taking down Pablo Escobar on December 2nd, 1993. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, appreciate it. Appreciate being here. So when they told you guys this is your project, you're gonna be going, your responsibility is to go catch this crazy guy here and you gotta take him down. What was your initial reaction when you were told Pablo's your project? Well, my initial reaction was, how do we attack this? How do we go after him? I mean, you're looking at the biggest narco trafficker in the world. And you know what we told people? We never realized. We knew he was a drug trafficker, but we never realized that violence that he had behind him, which made it very difficult. The Sicarios, the assassins. Mm -hmm. You know, you had I had never even heard of what a Sicario was. And then uh, all of a sudden, here's Pablo Escobar, who has hundreds. We calculate five, six hundred Sicarios uh, working for him. In the violence, he did not care. His message was, kill anybody who gets in my way. And if they don't comply with me, like I said, you know, wipe them out. Was Go he really them. that brutal? The brutality, the barbaric uh, side of him is something that I, can, I will never understand. My main question is why innocent people? Why mm. kill all these innocent people if you look at the Avianca commercial airline? It was all innocent people uh, on, on that plane. If you look at the famous DOS building, which was like the local FBI mm -hmm, office mm -hmm. in, uh, in Bogota, you know, a lot of innocent people and he was just trying to kill one person. The bounties on police officers. Uh, so it's something that I 
could never comprehend, and then the famous car bombs. You know, and that's why we call Pablo Escobar the inventor of narco-terrorism. He's the inventor of narco-terrorism. We, we say the inventor, he's the one who created that concept and we had never seen. We had seen, all right, turf wars, you know, hey, go kill these mm -hmm. people. But, you know, like you said, it was just uh, why all the innocent people that he went after and just people that were at the wrong place at the wrong time that he was killing. So let me ask you, when you took the job, when you said, okay, I'm, are you directed to take it with no options or do you have a choice to say yay or nay? when you're taking this response? Because as somebody in the military, they tell you what to do, you have to take the orders. You can't really, do you have a choice to say no to it or? It was a challenge uh, for us. Of course, we're not gonna say no. I never realized the magnitude what it was. of the empire that Pablo Escobar controlled. I don't think either one of us know a DE agent that would have ever said no to a challenge like and that. And I read about you saying that. I, I read about you saying the fact that the level of uh, um, uh, commitment that DEA agents have to each other and how it went from where it was at at that time and today the number is 90 offices in 71 different countries DEA which is much bigger than FBI so it just kind of shows the level of development that the leaders that develop and the leaders within the departments go back to when did Pablo become Pablo I mean you have to study this character so Pablo was Pablo way before we found out about Pablo because apparently he became a millionaire at 23 years old or some number like that so as you're doing your investigation into this guy, what are some things you're finding out about this guy that's making you want to take him down? I got there in 1988. To me, it was the drug distribution network that he had. All of a sudden, we're seeing, uh, I remember people telling us there'd be about five, six airplanes on a clandestine runway in the jungles. You know, five to six airplanes, a daily basis. They would say about 500 kilos of cocaine. And you would have airplanes going into Mexico, Central America, then the Caribbean islands. You know, their goal was to try to get it uh, into the South Florida area. So. The, the level of distribution, the people working uh, for him, the guys who owned the planes, one of the main I always remember is they, they loved airplanes. They wanted to buy as many airplanes as possible. So you had uh, black market uh, dealers in the Florida area buying airplanes to send back. Uh, that was a hot, hot commodity. But then also your cocaine labs. 10 to 15 in the jungles. And these labs are making a thousand kilos of cocaine on a daily basis. So it was uh, the, the labs working. You'd, uh, they'd press the kilos, I remember, in steel boxes. The laboratories were just enormous. You know, about 100 people used to work for them. Per laboratory. They, per laboratory. They had rules. And one thing I always tell people, I'll never forget, he had signs in his laboratories that said, if we catch you using the product, we will kill you. So he didn't want his workers to use, use the, the product. product. Right. But then it was like I said, the coordinates, it would send coordinates to Mexico, the famous General Noriega in, in Panama, the Caribbean islands. It was just something. How do you get that organized? And we, we always say Pablo was the CEO. He was not the one working the distribution. It was his first cousin. Gustavo Gaviria Rivero, and they grew up together. They grew up poor, but they were they were they were like brothers. They loved each other. But Gustavo developed that knack for the distribution network, sending it all over the world. So, who was the businessman? Was it Gustavo or was it Pablo? Gustavo was the businessman. Pa Pablo was the CEO. Gustavo, I'm sorry, Gustavo was the hands-on 
director. Chief for, Operating Officer, in essence. You know so what? That's a great term. Operations. So he ran operations. Yeah, he ran the operations because we used to intercept the phone calls. Got it. And it was, he would do the directions. He was the guy who was getting his hands dirty. Pablo was not. Pablo wasn't top. Pablo was the one who was giving orders. What made people want to follow Pablo? Because when you study this uh, Pablo character, I mean, people who tell them not, not the way it was in Narcos, you will see that, that they say Pablo wasn't the best speaker. He wanted to be a speaker like some of these other politicians, but he wasn't. So what made Pablo such a great persuader where other people wanted to follow this guy and take orders from him? Well, there's, there's a couple things. And, and honestly, we hesitate to give him credit for anything. But he did have somewhat of a charismatic personality. You know, he was able to persuade people. But now you look at his business model, and this is the other thing. If you didn't do what he asked you to do, he killed you. So, you know, that reputation gets out there. And so if he comes to you face to face and asks you to do something, chances are you're probably going to do it because you fear for your life, right? You know, I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier, just even in the insurance business, how how much quicker could you have risen to the top if you had killed your competitors? And I'm, I know we're saying that tongue in cheek. It's ridiculous to say something like that. But that was his business model. He introduced a level of drug trafficking to the United States and eventually to the entire world that we had never seen before. And it was, you know, if you watch the show Narcos, that the end of that first trailer of season one, Boyd Holbrook, who plays me in the show, makes a statement. We didn't know what we were in for. That's absolutely true. The United States was not prepared for what Pablo introduced Seriously, to this country. You, you, had, you had no idea what you were going up against. At one point did you realize this guy's going to go across the line no matter what it is. Like, if we think about going here, he's going to go here. So if you're going to match this guy, you kind of go, got to go here to face him. At what point did you realize how powerful this guy is? Well, I think, I think originally, by the time we were involved in it, we all knew who Pablo was. Because Javier got to Columbia in 1988. I got there in 1991. The cases that I'd been working on in Miami, I think all were... Uh, eventually tied into the Medellin cartel and Pablo. So we were already familiar when we got down there, but the fact that, you know, when you get there, we, I didn't know I was going to be working against Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. You know, I, I was, uh, Javier had a partner in Gary, Gary Sheridan at the time that they, you guys have been working it for three years. Well, Gary and I had some mutual friends and got to be friends, and that's how I got to be friends with Javier. And then Gary gets promoted and transferred. And it just made you know, sense that, that Javier and I would partner up, full-time partners. Right. And it's been like that since 1991. And, and Pablo, remember, his, his forte was South Florida, Miami mm -hmm. especially. He mm -hmm. had a lot of people uh, working for him in, uh, in the South Florida area. That was his home base. Uh, he concentrated, you know, I remember they called it, uh, they used to codename it Las Palmas. Palm trees. Everybody knew it was, it was Miami. He knows it. I remember uh, we're sending 100 head of white cattle <laughs> to Las Palmas. You know, 100 keys of coke to course, Miami. And it was just, it was that simple. And you um, learned the language eventually. You know yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything saying. had a code name. They tried to hide it. But New York was Las Torres, the, the towers, you know. Mexico was Los Sombrerones. Big hats, <laughs> like oh, we're going to Los Sombrerones, everybody knew. So, it, it, but like I said, his forte was always Miami. That's where he had a lot of people working uh, for him, the distributors, the guy who were receiving the loads, you know. But like I said, they had their contacts in Mexico also. I mean, they would send out coordinates where the airplanes would land in Mexico. And it was just, you know, unbelievable, but the amount of coke that was coming out. So I noticed you guys give a lot of credit to Kiki, right? You, you kept giving uh, credit to Kiki. What was his last name? Camarena. Camarena. Camarena, yeah. And he was on the cover of, what was it, Time magazine that he was on the cover of Time. And he worked with the Guadalajara cartel that he was working on. 
why why was Kiki such a big almost like a face a hero to you guys in your world what did he pave the way for you what was the story behind him this was before we came on the job so we're talking the early 1980s mm -hmm. But Kiki was trying to do basically what we eventually were trying to do in Colombia, and that's go up against these violent cartels. Kiki paid the ultimate price. You know, he was kidnapped by the police. He was tortured repeatedly. The reports that we heard were was that he was killed several times, and they had a doctor that would inject adrenaline into his heart to bring him back to life so they could continue to torture him. We all know eventually wow. he was murdered. And so then we saw the reaction of the United States government about Kiki's death. And at that time, our administrator was able to go to Capitol Hill and, and put the pressure at the White House so that for a very short period of time, the border between the United States and Mexico was closed because the Mexican authorities didn't want to cooperate with the United States investigation. In less, I, I think it was less than an hour, you know, the, they got a call from the Mexican government saying, okay, okay, we're, we're back in the investigation. We'll continue our investigation. Now, when we're involved with Narcos and the making of Narcos and, and working with Eric Newman and the writers, uh, one of the things that Javier and I requested is that they put a reference in there to Kiki Camarena because he's a true American hero. You know, the whole Red Ribbon campaign in the United States is, is in honor of Kiki Camarena. So in our book, he's a, he's a true hero. Wow. Right. And like, and like Steve said, Kiki Camarena is, is an idol. We've always idolized him, uh, look up to him. I was a brand new agent and I was involved in that search. So I will always remember I got a call from our boss, Joe Todd, says, so here, you know, I spoke Spanish. I was in Austin and I was involved for a couple of months in the search of Camarena. And, uh, but like Steve said, they, they tortured the poor guy. They let him die in peace. They did not, they tortured him. And then one of the things that DEA did was we never gave up on finding the people. And I think we found pretty much everybody who was involved. Here's my question for you. When you go up, go up against a guy like Pablo, okay? And like I was saying earlier, if this is the threshold, he's willing to go here, right? And you, as a DEA, you're confined into certain things that you have to follow. Like you can't go past certain things they tell you. Now, at least this is what we see as a citizen from the outside. I'm not on the inside because you hear both negative and positive. There's stuff that says don't even trust a government official, you know, about FBI, CIA, DEA. You hear all this stuff, right? If you're going up against a guy that's going to cross the line, he's going to cheat no matter what. How do you beat a guy like that that's willing to cheat that you're confined in some of the rules that you have to follow? That's a really good question. And, and not to get on our soapboxes here, but in our lives, there are a few things that we actually control. You have three children, three mm -hmm. small children, right? Mm -hmm. You make your plans, but then your child comes home and says, Dad, I've got a project due in the morning. Your whole evening's plans just changed. So there's a lot of things in our lives that we really don't control. We think we do, but we don't because there's a lot of outside interferences. Yeah. But there's absolutely one thing in every one of our lives that we control individually, and that is our integrity. Now, we'll tell you right up front, we broke rules, policies, and procedures on a regular basis in Colombia. We have never, never, never broken the law. We never stepped across that line. How do you control that? Because let me explain to you what I see from my standpoint, right? You crossed the line with me on my family side. I'm sorry, you know, it's just, you know, this is, this is blood, right? This guy's willing to go at all cost. How do you go up against that to match it? You know, it's very tough to match it. Like I remember one time, what did Reagan say? Reagan said, I don't negotiate with terrorists. Remember how that line, right. I don't negotiate with terrorists? Of course you're not gonna negotiate with terrorists because like, you either do this, I'm gonna kill you. He's gonna kill you no matter what. So this is not a regular guy you're facing. How does, how does an organization like you match up against? And I'm not talking integrity wise. 
because you know how in the, in the, in the series it shows uh, Colonel uh, uh, Carrillo, right? right? That's not a real character. It's really Hugo Martinez. In the series, it shows the fact that there was one guy he was afraid of and he was intimidated of because he could match his terror at that level. And a guy like that is always afraid of somebody that's willing to match that. How do you put the fear in a guy like him? Was the strategy to go after the cousin, the COO, Gustavo, so it kind of cripples him? That, that's the part I really want to know, because what you guys thought about Yeah, one of the best things that ever happened is that Steve and I lived at the search block base. The school was called the Carlos Olguin uh, School, and it was in the middle of a neighborhood, so we slept there, we ate with our, and we had a specialized group of cops working with them. Like he's, Steve said, we were not in operations pretty much every day, so we knew what was going on. We were trusted by our group, they trusted us. And this the, is the Colombian group? The Colombia, yeah, it's called the, uh, the Dihin group of the Colombian National Police, the Dihin, D-I-J-I-N. their DEA or is that their it, it, it's police? Their, no, it's their specialized unit, uh, sort of investigative, plainclothes unit, their narcotic Got unit. It. And we knew this guy's working with them in Bogota, so they knew us. So From different projects? From, from different projects, different projects. So when Got Pablo it. Escobar, you know, they handpicked this guys. Because mm -hmm. they had picked some guys from Medellin, but, you know, Pablo would get to their families. You know, they started, uh, they were corrupt. So they would tell Pablo, you know, when they were coming for him. So these guys were all came from different areas. It was very interesting. At the beginning, there was a lot of phone calls being made. We credit Colonel Martinez came in and pretty much did not tell anybody, you know, where the operations were, just kept it at a select few. No phone calls from anywhere, load up at night, we're going here, you know, so we would have the convoy of trucks. We had, see, the base was made up of uniformed police officers, also handpicked in the investigative unit. So it, it was great, because the investigative unit would come back, boss, we think we got Pablo located, all right, uniformed officers, mount up. And they were from a group called Gaula, which was their specialized, it was jungle operation type guys. The concept, which is what I think DEA did right, was a more of a world type concept where they said, Colombia, you, you go after Pablo Escobar in Colombia, United States, DEA, we're going to go after Pablo Escobar wherever he's at, all over the world. Europe, Miami, uh, New we. York, yeah, DEA. So our offices, which was a brand new concept, were instructed, you go after anybody that's associated with Pablo Escobar, which was great. So we were attacking him in the United States and the Colombians were attacking him in Colombia. So this is the first time that we see a structure of an organization that you're gonna attack it at, at both at both sides. I guess my question is uh, the following question. When, when you take down a guy like that, that has to leave a certain playbook for the next person that possibly decides to be like that. Here's the process. We first do this, yes. then we do this, then we do this. There's a system behind it, right? Like yes. right now we have El Chapo, uh, uh, you're dealing with Joaquin El Chapo, I think it's Guzman is his last yeah, name. Guzman, yeah. So when you're going through some, does that leave a playbook? And if it is, what is step number one, two, three? Do you have a protocol for it? Yeah. I, I'm just thinking from yeah. an outside of myself, if I'm an innocent, if I'm a guy that I wasn't in your world, step number one, study everybody that he's close to him. Step number two, who's his number one customer? Step number three, who's his number one ally? Step number four, is that the approach? Is it that you know methodical what, you, or you, not you, really? You know what, you hit it right on the head. You go after, you just don't go after, all right, I'm gonna go after Pablo Escobar. You target 
the money launderers, you target the guys who are buying the airplanes, you target the guys who are working the labs. In the United States, there's distribution heads all over the place that receive it. So it's a joint effort. You just don't say, I'm going after Chapo, I'm going after Pablo Escobar. You gotta go after everybody that's involved in the organization for it to finally work. And I think a great example was at the end of the Medellin cartel, pretty much everybody was taken off, everybody was killed. There's hundreds, thousands of people that went to jail that were working for Pablo Escobar. So it was a different concept. You know, one of the things too, just to clarify a point, but also to give credit where credit's due, Javier and I get all the credit for Pablo yeah. Escobar. It wasn't just us. I mean, DEA just didn't take two guys and say, that's your case, go work on it. We had agents, analysts, support personnel all around the world, and that's one of the beauties of DEA having this huge footprint around the world. How big was it at that time, Steve? How big was the DEA? I'm, uh, agent-wise, there was only 3,500 agents 3, back at that time. Yeah. Where is it right now, comparable? It's uh, supposed to be at 5,000, but I think they're, 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 they've got classes ongoing yeah. now trying to get to the level back up. Yeah, but mid-5,000 is pretty yeah. much what I've heard. Though. And you know what? We, we, we had the best analysts in, in, in the world. I mean, I remember they used to give us packages. Uh, hey, here's this guy. Here are the associates, the analysts. From the, the states? Yeah, it's coming from, the from states. states to you? Target packages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Target how does it packages. make it to you? At that, like, how are they communicating that to you? Was it a. We, we had people assigned in Bogota, and then from headquarters, they would send it over, you know, I mean, obviously electronically secure methods. So, so here's a question. So, was there ever a time where Pablo's military was stronger than Colombia's military? Like, was there ever a time where. Because that's the scary part. If somebody's, if a citizen's military is stronger than yours, what the, you desperately need some help, right? Did it ever get to that point? Well, that, that first manhunt, you saw what happened. He negotiated a surrender to a self-built prison. Basically, he'd beat the government at that point. So he was as strong, if not stronger, than the government at that point. And when that happened, you were pretty disappointed when yeah, that happened. I, you were kind yeah, of frustrated. And I was there. And, and also, let me clear, there was a lot of killings going on during the, the first time because of the, of the sicarios. There were a lot of, like I said, the, the bombs, the killings. And basically, Pablo's plan was to weaken Colombia. By weakening, I'm talking about I'm going to kill as many people as I can. That way, I will negotiate. That's what he always wanted. He wanted to negotiate his surrender. And one thing a lot of people miss or does not get brought up, and I, don't, I mean, I'm just not sure why, but is extradition. A lot of people was do not of that. know that his number one fight on Colombia, his number one fight for the, in the start of terrorism was he did not want to get extradited to the United States. Because he knew it would be over at that time. That's when he offered the $10 billion to the government, say, we'll pay off your debt, right. just don't extradite me, right? Leave me alone right, and let right. me be. Yeah. And he wanted to be, I mean, you know, he wanted to be president of Colombia. He volunteered to pay off their debt. And we've always said, you know, if Pablo Escobar was a good person, he would have been a great president. So I want to finish up this thought here so we can transition into the next part. Go back to being in high school, okay? You're in high school. It helps you to have a cousin that's everybody's afraid of. It helps you to have a cousin or a friend or an older brother or somebody that you just, listen, you mess with Javi, you know, Joey's coming. Did you guys have also somebody where you're like, okay, listen, we broke some rules all the time. We didn't, we always had our integrity, but we broke the rules. But there was somebody that he was very scared of where this guy could cross the line. In the movie is Colonel 
you know, Carrillo. Carrillo. But in real life, was there somebody that he was afraid of that could match his madness? I think he was scared of Colonel Martinez. And I agree. Colonel Martinez wow. was a guy. So he was. So Martinez is really, some of the stories of Martinez is Carrillo. We're not saying Colonel Martinez by any means would have broken the law like Pablo. He was just incorruptible. And Pablo knew that. I mean, there, there was one instance at Colonel Martinez's apartment building that all the other residents in that apartment building signed a letter asking Colonel Martinez and his family to move out because they thought they were afraid Pablo was going to blow up the building and they would be killed simply because Colonel Martinez lived there. So the man was incorruptible. And he didn't move out. He stayed. No, yeah, he stayed. And I saw him once break down. I saw him. We were at a meeting and... Emotion? Like oh, tears? Emotionally. Really? And he, 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 he wanted out. I mean, he wanted out because Pablo was threatening his family and basically said, hey, this is getting just way out of hand. It's too personal, my family. And at a weak moment, he wanted out. At a weak moment. He thought about it. Did, did, what came, brought him back? Came back and did not give up. I've always admired that about him. I mean, here's Pablo Escobar trying to kill your family. And, you know, imagine being Pablo Escobar's worst enemy, which was Colonel Martinez. So how I come mean, he didn't do anything to him? He, oh, well, there's a lot of protection. Colonel Martinez obviously, you know, uh, hit his family, but I think it he strengthened. Did. He moved out of his family? He, he, he hit him, he, he hit him, obviously, you know, because Pablo was trying to kill him. There's a letter where he threatens Martinez. You know what? I think it just strengthened Martinez. His resolve. To Conviction, to I yeah. bet. Yeah, the strategy from the police, and it was, I think it's what really won the war against Pablo Escobar was, they used to tell us, hey, we're not here to seize money, we're not here to seize dope, we're here to get Pablo Escobar. So it's, it was a different resolve. It was, it was personal. And personal because of all the police officers that Pablo killed. I mean, if you look at the, the numbers of police officers that he killed, when he started bounties, we went to a funeral where in the church we had eight coffins of police officers. And, and in every day, the, the car bombs, you know, the hiring people, the bounties on police officers. The search became a war because it got personal. He announces that he wants to run for office. Not announces, but you kind and of pretty much know. This, this was, was beforehand. beforehand. Right. Oh, so let me ask you, it got personal before he ran? And if it got, it, it didn't no, seem like no, it got it, personal it, beforehand, right? It got no, personal afterwards. It, it was afterwards. He got personal afterwards because of the people that he started killing. You saw the famous justice minister, Rodrigo Lara Bonilla. But he killed him he, after what he said about him, mm -hmm. right? So it wasn't, so I, I want to know, what was the part? Because here's, for the longest time, he was saying, I sell flowers. I have a flower business, right? And I'm an entrepreneur, and yeah. I have this, and I have this. So people were kind of leaving him alone, right? Right, and this was at the beginning. And right. he used to go to Medellin. They loved him. You know, people used to see him. Uh, it wasn't until, I think, really the mid-'80s that we started finding out that Pablo Escobar was responsible. Did somebody, like, you know how you study a guy like Hitler? I mean, you know, let, let's just say a guy like Hitler, and you say, what is wrong with a person to wake up one day to decide that he wants to go out there and, you know, get rid of an entire, you know, uh, society, community? Now, what is wrong with you to do that? And then when you read the book Mein Kopf, or if you study his stories and all this other stuff, you realize there was a time that somebody hurt his ego. And it was, more, it was not necessarily anything extravagant that you would think that somebody did something to his wife, family, kids. 
someone crossed the line and cr hit his ego and he says, I'm going to make this a life uh, uh, determination to go after it. Who hurt his ego publicly? Because in the movie, it's that one scene where you guys are sitting in the back and after kind of doing a little due diligence, you guys weren't in there when he got up and he said, we've all taken money from him, I've taken money from him. And I'm telling you right now, Pablo Escobar and Pablo sitting there, the scene where he's getting the tie from the security guy and then he walks out. Was that the scene where he said, you're going to play with me and publicly humiliate me? Watch what I'm going to do to you. Was that kind of what happened? It's sort of, but the, like you said, the TV series, I mean, there's some artistic licenses. I, I think what drove Pablo was, first of all, he did not want to get extradited to the United States. And second, he wanted to show Colombia that he was the boss that he was going to negotiate, he was going to instruct Colombia on what his terms would be. Now, and if you, I'm, I'm glad you, you talked about, because we studied, we, what stu we, we used to, the, the, the motivation was that greed. I mean, because if you, and you know, if you look at, at the sentence that he got, five years in prison, billion, right? You're gonna have billion and you're only doing five years? But if, if you look back to what led to that, when Lara Bonilla unveiled that mugshot of Pablo, that embarrassed him. He was embarrassed. That's he was sitting in saying. Congress. That's, so that's what it was. So that embarrassed him What terribly. year is that, by the way? That was in the mid-'80s. Yeah, it yeah. It's, it's a very iconic yeah, photo. You see that photo, and you see that smile. Smile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we always you see <laughs> yeah. that smile. Who and smiles in a mugshot? A, yeah. <laughs> And, he, and we say, yeah, he was in jail for five minutes. You know, five minutes, he, he gets out. You know, you see sometimes, you know, somebody is making their money and they want power, they want fame. And then if, you, if they really go through the tipping point, humiliate them publicly. Now you see a different side of them. And sometimes the ego for some people is so big that you cross that line, you're going to get a pretty bad enemy coming after you for a while, right? You got to be prepared right, for that. Right, you got, you got to be prepared. And this is why I think... He started with the violence, with killing as many people as possible. I listened to him on the phone one day and he's talking to his wife. I'll never forget that conversation, telling her how much he loves her. We're intercepting the phone and he's, I love you, I miss you. This was during the search. Mm -hmm. In the background, you hear a guy yell. It's a shriek. He covers the phone, says, cover his mouth. In other words, they're torturing a guy. While he's on the phone with his wife. While he's on the phone and telling her how much he loves her and how much he misses her. That was like, wow. I mean, how do you change, you know, your emotions that fast? It was two or three seconds. I love you, baby. I, I miss you. And then Kill there's the a guy, guy who's yelling. They're torturing the guy. And he's witnessing it. And, you know, it's just... How, how does that happen? So, so there, there are some uh, studies that say that this guy said he's going to be a president a long time ago. Like he had aspirations on wanting. So it's not like it happened once he started making money. Where does this motivation come from for this ambitious guy? You study his parents. One was a teacher. It's one not like, farmer. you know, one was a farmer. Like what, you know, what is the fire? Where is that fire coming from? Did you see some stuff that maybe we don't know about? The famous photo. And I think, too, he was shunned by the Colombian government because he was an associate, they call him suplentes, congressman. And I think it was uh, Galan, Luis Carlos Galan, who found out he was a trafficker. So he was ousted. So, I mean, he is publicly embarrassed by the Colombian government. Mm. So you're ousting me? 
I'll show you. In my opinion, that's all it was. I'm going to show you. You disgraced me. When you go back to Alexander, you study that he had a father that kind of uh, was a drunk, you know, drunkard, and he wasn't around, and his mother would feed a lot of stuff into his mind. One day you're going to be this. One day you're going to conquer the world. One day you're going to do this part. And he had a very interesting uh, combination between his mom and his dad, right, on who he became. Right. There was an Aristotle that was feeding into his mind on how to be a leader. So there was a perfect combination of three different characters in his life. Do you know of people that were in his ear? that were? Because I know his he, wife would always say, you can one day be a president, you can one day be a president, but who else was in his, his ear? His mother was the main, his father really wasn't involved. He was a farmer, kept to his you know, cows. It was the mother who always kept telling him what to do. The wife was also, I mean, she knew about the business, of course, but I think it was more of his mother telling him the directions of what he needed to do. Well, I was thinking just earlier before that, as he's just coming up as a, he's a fledgling criminal, you know, I think he realized how much money there was to be made in the drug business and how simple it was. His first reported drug deal was for, I think it was 17 kilos. And the person, when he saw how quickly he could move that, how much money he could make, he went and killed that person. So that stepped him up one ladder, you know, one rung on that ladder towards the top of the ladders, which is where he wanted to go. Now what helped him is he had no remorse, he had no compunction, he had no guilt feelings whatsoever about killing people. He was just doing business. And so when you've got that type of, that psyche and that mentality, I think that had a lot to do. And, and then as you get more powerful and more wealthy, you think you're important now. You know, and that's where he decided, okay, now I want to move into Congress. Now I want to be president. Now I want this, yeah. now I want that. The only, the only reason I ask is because sometimes you see, you know, you look at Frank Lucas. Frank Lucas from American Gangster, right. the movie. Right. He had his boss that was putting a lot of inspiration into him. He had somebody to watch. Who was Pablo's example? Like, who was Pablo following to say, I'm following this guy's footsteps? Was there anybody? Yeah, uh, in the history of the cartel, I mean, you had Jose Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha, who was more powerful than Pablo Escobar, was richer, because Gacha had taken over the emerald business. There's a famous massacre in Colombia, everybody knows about it, where he killed off the competition, Gilberto Molina. So he took over that. And how Gacha came up with the concept of the cocaine labs in Colombia. So after Gacha gets killed, Pablo takes over that organization. But my question has always been, how does Pablo rise to that CEO when you're mm -hmm. dealing with the most major <laughs> traffickers in Colombia, right? I mean, you got the most mm -hmm. ruthless, you got the biggest, baddest traffickers. How do you become boss? Is that still a question? Is it still a question till today for you or no? Yes, has that yes been answered? it is because, no, I mean, that has always been my question. How did he rise? Got it. So you Where you have other major traffickers all listening to Pablo Escobar. See, that's what I'm, that's what <laughs> wow, I'm wondering. Because I mean, I just, if you look at the Cali brothers, you knew they were just driven by money. They were business guys. So to them, it was a different story, right? And, and sometimes, sometimes for people, it's just money, fame is all it is. Very few people have that big of an aspiration like a Pablo does. It has to be something deeper. By the way, what happens if Pablo doesn't have the aspirations of running for office? Does his legacy continue? Or would it eventually still stop? Let's just say Pablo says, you know what? I don't want to run for office. I want to be a low-key guy. Mm -hmm. I just want to take these 15 facilities that I have that were producing cocaine, a ton of cocaine a day. Let's make it 30, let's make it 40, let's make it 50. Maybe let's go to other countries. Let's make it in different places. How much bigger would he have gotten if he had zero aspirations of being a political leader? I think he would never have been capable of doing 
what you're suggesting says. Let me do you low key, because that that ego he had, that personality. When you study him, when you listen, there inside uh, his custom built prison, he had a, a he had a Salvador Dali original, probably worth a couple million dollars hanging <laughs> on the wall. There's a famous artist in Colombia, Fernando Botero, who's extremely well known. He has a Botero original hanging on the wall. It's worth about 1.5 million dollars. And this was in 1991, 1992. Right, right. Steve mentioned before that charisma he had, that is very accurate. He'd go down and he would recruit his own sicarios. A lot of people do not know that. Yeah, there was a famous church. He would convert, church. right? He would convert he would, a lot of yeah, people. He would, a there word. was a famous Catholic church in Medellin, one of the poorest neighborhood churches. And he would have meetings and he would come in. And all these young thugs, 14, 15 year olds, they'd hug him, you know, he'd kiss him, give him money. And that was the allegiance, you know, that was, you know, you're the biggest trafficker and you're going down yourself. That's interesting what you're I mean, saying. that just shows that personal, what you're talking about, yeah. that ego, that uh, and, and here's the scenario. So he goes into this neighborhood where people are literally living on the edge of a trash dump. That's where their food comes from. That's where their clothing the comes from. Their yeah. cardboard and pieces of wood that they create mm -hmm. a little living shelter. Mm -hmm. He comes in and he, he builds low cost housing and lets people live there for free. He provides them with food. He yep. builds medical clinics, soccer fields. He gives them money, he gives them food. So think about it. Now, if your mom, if you come from a situation like that, and now all of a sudden your mom's got a roof over her head, she's got a, a lock on her door. Yep. So you get a little bit of security. You got running water, you've got electricity. What are you gonna think about the guy? But I mean, this isn't anything new, right? If you wanna get the vote, go get all the poor people and give them free food, give them free right. place to live, yeah. and you're gonna yeah. get their votes. And so here's right. the point. That's not a Robin Hood, which kind of, that's the persona everybody seems to want to portray yeah. him. He's, he, he wasn't a Robin Hood for these people. He manipulated those people because when he needed his new Sicarios, yeah. where did he go back to? There is a part of it where this whole Robin Hood theory came about because I think when Pablo died, 25,000 people showed up and they just wanted to touch his oh, face. They, they wanted to, he was like glorified when he passed away. They broke the out of the morgue. They parading Parade him the uh, on the street. Does that make uh, you upset when you see that? Like, do you, do you, because. It, it, it doesn't, you know, because, I mean, it's, this is history. It happened. It doesn't it, now? Well, I mean, it, it doesn't no, no, at no. that time. No, at that emotionally, time. Emotionally, you're yeah, so Emotionally, vested. we lost a lot of friends that were killed by Pablo Escobar. You know, in the innocent people, I, I hated Pablo Escobar. But people love him. You know what? It's it's a way of life. Colombia's a safe country. It's a, it's a beautiful place. Uh, beautiful Medellin, people are so beautiful nice, yeah. people. And you know what? We got to say, 99.9% .9 of Colombians are great, innocent, hard-working people. It's that little 1% of the traffickers that ruin it, you know? Uh, but still Medellin, till today's a lot of it yeah. still today or no? Yep, and, and you still. know what? We don't tell too many people, but we, you know, visit Medellin. The only thing you cannot do in Medellin, do not badmouth Pablo Escobar in Medellin. Till today. He still has a lot of loyal followers. Till today. Till today. Wow. So wow. the legend continues. Still, still love him. So I've seen you say this, that what we saw in Narcos, the jail was nice, but you're saying the jail was so what was this jail like that he chose to build? What was it like? It was, it was very much like a country club. So Pablo, what Pablo calls a jail cell is a two-room suite. The bathroom has a jacuzzi tub, walk-in closet, a safe hidden behind the drawers in his walk-in closet. On the back side where you hang your long clothes, there was a wall, there was a coletta back there, a hidden space. And so you push the button and the back wall pops open. There's a place to jump in there and hide. In the, main, in the main room, was, which was a kitchen and living room combination, he had a microwave oven, full-size refrigerator, nice banana bar with the bar stools. He had color-coordinated draperies and upholstery. 
which is, you look at it now, it's a little bit gaudy, but you know, that's not what you'd expect to see in a prison cell. He had the million dollar pieces of art hanging on the wall, candles on the tables. You go into the bedroom, a custom built bed, bigger than any king size bed you've ever seen. Mm. His audio visual center, didn't have, they didn't have cable TV and satellite TV and Netflix and things like that back then, but he did have all the latest releases of TV shows and movies from all around the world. He had uh, a fireplace in behind his desk in his office area. He had pictures hanging on the wall. One of the things, you know, if he's this devoted family man, when you when you came into the living room portion, he took his wanted poster and had that framed hanging on the wall, <laughs> not pictures of his family. And then when you get behind his desk, he took all of his mug shots and had those matted and framed in a collection because it's I can really see nice, him being you know. like that though. I can see he that. He had a collection of letters, folders, letters from people that would write him saying he was a great guy. There was one letter and we talked about it. It was uh, from a lady who's offering her daughter to come to the prison and entertain Pablo Escobar. That ain't that sickening. To have his love child. Yeah. It, she was 13 years he old. He was saved. Well, and Pablo that was just, 24 when he first started dating his right, wife and wife yeah. was 13. So that, right. that's... But it just goes back to what you're talking about, about Pablo's persona. He kept all the letters that people would write to him. So was he a woman? Yeah. Oh, there's parties, you know, and we make a little joke. I mean, there was a lot of orgies at the, at the prison. Now, that in itself doesn't make him a bad guy, right? But uh, that's, that's a joke. <laughs> that's a joke, guys. Yeah. But I mean, there was coming a lot from of... you because, because <laughs> the way, Nar let me say <laughs> this, though, the way, the way Narcos is, is presented, you know, uh, Javier, uh, it's a whole different ballgame with is. you. <laughs> you. You look like you were a step away from being a porn star in Hollywood. I mean, that's how they presented you. I know, Let me I ask know. you, when you were watching some of those girls that played those roles, were you like, I don't know if she looked like her. You know, she looked you know a little what? better than her. You know what I say? You know what? I wish that would have been true. <laughs> hey, that, I wish that would have happened. Can I play this role today, even though Just it's really me? Just a little really joke me. with DA guys a lot of times. I'm here. Man, now my wife thinks I'm sleeping with our reformers because I bet. <laughs> so that's all Hollywood. That, but you also that. were never married, right? No, nah, nah, I was you, single you, at the time. You, you were, I was single, but that's you know that's Hollywood. But that's kind of funny. So but you were having a good time in Colombia. I was single, but I didn't date you know communists, informants. You know, I mean, it's and and you know what it was. I, hey, I'm, listen, you I'm, made time. Respect yeah, made you. Time. You made time <laughs> so is, to yeah. have your extracurricular yeah. so activity. So this, this is my partner. I got to take up for him. He was not dating communists, yeah, yeah, hookers. Or, uh, or informants, right? But like I say, every, 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 other, every other woman in Colombia is fair game. So, would you ask the girl, "What is your political beliefs? Do you believe in capitalism or communism?" <laughs> I can't have sex with you if you believe in communism. Uh, so, okay, so and so but, he was a womanizer. He was a party yeah, guy. Yeah, he was talking about the orgies, all this other of, stuff. I remember a lot of negligees. Was he a big user himself? Was he a big user? Did marijuana. You like marijuana? marijuana. I didn't he see really anything didn't, about cocaine. Yeah, we never heard people would never, but you know, a lot of marijuana use. And then, how do you get the Colombian? soccer team to come play at the prison. The <laughs> national soccer team, we found photos. There's a famous goalie. A lot of people remember the guy with the dreadlocks, Rene Guita. The guy that kicked it from the, that's the guy that well, kicks that, it from. That's another, that's a, the auto goal. That, that guy was killed later You're on. You're talking about the World Cup when Columbia scored against itself. Yeah, yeah he's talking Escobar. about a different guy. I'm talking that, about that, by the way, that, does that killing have anything tied to Pablo or no? Yes, yes. Uh, we, matter of fact, the, the guy. The player that got killed. The guy, it was a guy by the name of uh, Jesus Gallon, and we, a lot of documents, I think he was finally arrested. He worked for Pablo Escobar. This guy was one of the distributors. The death was all, ex not accidental, the death was just at a bar. One of the traffickers lost a lot of money because of you, 
and that and that was it. It wasn't a planned hit. It wasn't premeditated. Yeah, it wasn't premeditated. They were at a bar because of your auto goal, remember? But linked back to Pablo? Yeah, because this guy used to work for Pablo Got Escobar. So, so one in, of Pablo's in people. In essence, yeah, yeah. So indirectly. Yeah, Got indirectly. It. Interesting. So now his compound where he lived, you know, this whole story about zoos, he built 20 yeah. lakes, some astronomical Finca, number of cars that he owned. Is, that is insane. That, is that the famous really? Finconopolis was his pride and joy. And we have a lot of photos, Steve talks about it. But that was his headquarters before he was on our radar. That's when they had the parties, people would fly in. We had a lot of, I remember talking to traffickers in the States pilots. They'd fly in, meet with Pablo, you know, they'd uh, load up the airplanes. And that, that was his love. He had a bullfighting ring there. He had a zoo, all the exotic animals. He had a playground with giant dinosaur statues for the kids. Uh, it it was just cool phenomenal. And remember, you got the money of the world. Yeah, no doubt. In all of these traffickers, what, what are they trying to do to other traffickers? They're trying to tell them, I have more than you do. <laughs> That's why and they will display it. You know, so. mm -hmm. It's like a competition between each Constantly. Time. Let me ask you, you know how sometimes you see names like this and you see Hollywood celebrities, people like that who want to party with some names like this. Was there any of that going on in Colombia where celebrities from U.S. were coming down to Colombia to party with them or that wasn't really the case with you guys when you were out there? I don't remember hearing about U.S. Mm. celebrities coming down, but it wasn't unusual for him to have like former Colombian beauty queens yeah. come in for parties yeah. and things like that. Beauty queens. Yeah, beauty for queens. politicians uh, that were on the politicians, payroll. Politicians, a lot of politicians came into the ranch. We never saw celebrities. So let me ask you, going back to the power play with what happened with Gustavo, do you think uh, like pre-Gustavo, post-Gustavo getting killed, who was Pablo pre, who was Pablo post? Meaning, did he lose a lot of his confidence after Gustavo was gone? Gustavo Gaviria was surrounded. Come up with your hands up. Comes out with a machine gun. We wanted him alive, because we wanted him in the United States because of all the, this guy had the connections all over the world, but he chose to come out uh, fighting. It was difficult for Pablo to get, but you know, he got organized, but one thing like, and he never forgave for the killing of his cousin. Remember, they were brothers. They were more than brothers. They were always together. And Gustavo was, I think, more of the calm, the common sense type guy, Pablo. What's the famous line? You're spending too much money or you're making yeah. too much money? And he tells you just to launder more money. This is in Narcos. He tells you to launder more money. He said, you know, we can't. And he said, he, isn't that what Al Capone well, did? Well, yeah, he said, that what Al Capone did? And Gustavo said, great line. Al Capone never had this much money. money yeah. <laughs> that is a great line, you know. But it was that type. Gustavo was always the common, the the grounding Pablo. Pablo, you know, calm down, calm down. And I remember stories where the other traffickers, the Ochoas, would say Pablo, and you know, and the Ochoas are an interesting phenomenon. They were different. They were already rich, but they liked, you know, selling dope. But basically, don't kill you know, important people. You know, they would try to tell them this is gonna cost us, you know, uh, for them to come after us. And, and they were right. That's what cost them uh, to come after Pablo Escobar. You know what, and you're talking about, you know, Pablo Escobar's ego, that power. I remember, and this is, wow, this is a great example. We took one, of, during one of the raids, we took one of the cars and he belonged to his sister. So we took the, sis the car in the dashboard, 
and I have a copy of that note. It basically, there was a note that says, if you're thinking of stealing this car, do not. This is Pablo Escobar, and this car belongs to my sister. Avoid problems. <laughs> Ain't that a great life insurance Did it really have it on <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw it. It's, it's written and signed by Pablo Escobar. Avoid problems. You know, that's the best insurance a car could ever have. I mean, you see that name right there. People probably felt safer if they had him as a backing. So if you saw a name there, nobody wanted to mess with him across. No, no. So, so the numbers I read about are the following numbers. Is it more or less than this? It's he killed the presidential candidate. That's one. Luis Carlos Galán. He, he kissed, killed the minister of justice. Laura right? Bonilla. He killed the attorney general. Okay. Mm -hmm. He killed some numbers say a thousand cops. Some numbers say three thousand cops. I think his son, Sebastian Marroquin, a.k.a. Juan Pablo Escobar, said, my dad in one week killed 500 cops. This is his son saying this, that in one week he killed 500 cops. And then thousands of people, and we were talking about earlier, where you hear the number and some say he killed 5,000 people, some killed 10,000 people, and then Popeye, who was his number one hitman, who's got a, by the way, he's got a YouTube channel, it's so strange, this guy's got a YouTube channel with six, 700,000 subscribers, and he claims that that Pablo, he himself killed 300 people for Popeye that he was assigned to kill, but he said Pablo killed in a 50,000 people. So as vicious as Narcos series made it to us, was it even more vicious than that? Like I know you hear, you watch the show and you sit there and say, this is not even close or was it pretty close to it? Narcos did not get that right. right. And you always said that, Steve says that. Narcos and I did believe not get that no, right. It, it, there was more violence, it was more vicious, it was more, assassinations. You know, when you're talking about people, you miss one of the also uh, newspaper editor, Guillermo Cano. That's if right. you do the research, he's the one who writes an odd bad piece. Fellow Colombians, we need to bring back extradition. Escobar kills him for yep. writing that odd bad piece on extradition. Yeah, so the, the violence that's shown in Narcos, like my sister, when, when she started watching it, she, she couldn't watch it past, I think, the second episode originally because of the language and the violence, but I think eventually she did watch the whole thing. But as bad as Narcos portrays the violence in Colombia under Pablo Escobar's reign, it was a lot, lot worse than that. And that's... What do you mean by that, though? Like, what you, you say that. Give us an idea how much worse. Because it's, I mean, it doesn't get any worse than some of the no, stuff he's no. doing. And if you go back, look at the car bombs. That, that's where I always tell people, the, the car bombs. And, and you know what? We had never, what's a car bomb? I've never heard, you know, I mean, you see it, you know, you used to see it up, uh, you know, uh, in other parts of the world, but then, you know, when you were putting them on, on a daily basis, you know, 10, 15 car bombs on a daily basis, you know, shopping centers, that to me was an all out, I don't care who dies. This is my war on Colombia and really the rest of the world, on us too, on the United States. I'm going to basically bring you down to your knees. And when he, when he would kill people, it wasn't just, you know, shoot them in the head and move on. He, he had them tortured. When he was going after somebody, especially a political figure, he not only killed them, just like Laura Bonilla, he was going after the entire family. Very common. This was very common when it was happening. It, it, it was, was common. It's like it, everyday practice. Yeah. Was it every day you're seeing somebody every getting day. killed? Or every somebody's... day there was something new and you would say, what else can he do? that, you know, your imagination, you could not even uh, fathom, you know, the, the famous commercial airline. The kidnappings were, a lot of people were, were being kidnapped and there's a famous lady, 
by the name of Diana Turbay. Her dad used to be the president of Colombia. She was a journalist. He kidnapped a lot of journalists. That way they could write and say, Pablo Escobar's a good person. He's looking, you know, uh, please, Colombia, let him have whatever he wants. That, so that's not the reporter, right? That's not the Valerie or... or no, uh, no, Because no. that's, by the way, that's a real character. Her name right. is Virg uh, Virginia. Virginia or, Vallejo. Yeah. Which looks like her twin. And she's dropped it gorgeous in real life based on some of the pictures you see. She looks like they're related. And so was, was she really having a relationship with Pablo? Yeah, she was one of his girlfriends. And remember, he liked press people so he could convince them to write good about him. That's why he wanted all Not the Not much has changed for today. Uh, today, business people buy press companies so they can write good things about them. So <laughs> not much has changed. So if Pablo, if Pablo didn't cross the line with that and he was in business, and his style of doing business wasn't to kill people, except put competition out of business, how good would have Pablo done in business as a CEO? I just don't want to give the guy credit. I know you don't. I know you don't. So yeah, you, you tend to think that he probably would have done a good job in a legal business, but his business model is based on violence. You can't employ that in a legal business and be successful. So I don't know. I, I just don't want to give him credit and say, yes, he would have been successful. So I will say it. If, I, if he was, he would have been the guy so litigious, he'd be suing everybody to find his way <laughs> yeah. getting to the top. Yeah. I can't no, see that you're, possibly you're, taking place. You're right. Yeah. You're so, right. uh, by the way, as you guys are going through, were there any um, stories related to presidents, you know, Bush, Reagan, Clinton? Was anything happening that maybe didn't, uh, wasn't covered in the series of Narcos? Was there anything outside of that? Yeah, uh, it was really, I remember uh, President Bush when he was the vice president. And when we started seeing the violence in Miami, remember all the violence mm -hmm. and, you know, Scarface, mm -hmm. remember the Scarface yep. movie? I mean, that was pretty accurate. I mean, a lot of, but anyway, a lot of, a lot of people were getting killed in South Florida. A lot of bodies, the famous Dateland Mall massacre. Remember the one o'clock? We started seeing uh, Colombians killing Colombians in the middle of the day. It's like, what is going on? Then in South Florida, bodies started coming up all over the place and it was Colombians. And basically, uh, I think under President Bush, he was the vice president, he says, man, hey, we have a problem here in South Florida. Then they started looking at all the money that was being invested in Miami, the, the famous buildings, uh, the famous banks that were taking all the money, and says, we need to do something about it. So he created a task force. South Florida task force. The South Florida task force, which was the beginning. And from there, it led on to and, and then from there, the pressure was being put on Colombia to bring back extradition. That, I was about to ask about extradition. Yeah, yeah. and, and that's to, how that's, we, that's why he was so concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extradition, bring it back. And then you see in Colombia, you have certain people that are saying, wow, maybe we need to bring back extradition because we cannot handle Pablo Escobar. So what happened to those people? Pablo Escobar killed. Had to. Laura yeah. Bonilla, the newspaper editor. So this is why this whole war from Pablo Escobar was based on extradition. So the one question that I think even till today is not fully answered. No one, n there isn't really anyone that has a hundred percent answer. This is what happened, right? Anybody. A lot of people say different stories and we have to almost take their word for it. It's like faith. You know, you haven't seen God, but you believe there is a God, right? So. And, and based on what I've read, I see three different stories. One of the stories is that uh, Pablo was killed by the Colombian police, okay? Because 
That's who killed him. At the end, somebody put a bullet through his head because, you know, he was shot three times, one in the torso, one in the leg, and one through the ear that went through from one ear, came out of the other ear, right? When you see the picture, you kind of see the autopsy, you see how that looks. Okay, so number one, Colombian police is who killed Pablo. Now, obviously, as a nation, you want that to be number one because Colombia needs that victory. The second scenario you hear about, he was killed by a Delta Force, you know, Navy SEAL, you know, team from the top. You know, I have friends from Delta Force and they know what they're doing. A sniper can be up there Absolutely. knowing exactly where he's at and take him out. And they're pretty sharp at what they do. So for somebody to get him straight through the head is not a difficult thing to do. But then that would be the victory of America if Americans killed him. Number three is what uh, 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 Sebastian Marroquin talks about when he says, I know my dad was committing suicide because my dad always told me you know, if they come to you, no one's going to kill me. If you have a gun with 15 bullets, 14 are used to kill the enemy. One is used to kill yourself because no one should be able to kill yourself. Uh, no one should be able to kill you. And that's why he says, my dad called me seven times. That's the story. Call me once, I wouldn't pick up. Because I knew if I picked up, they're going to know where my dad's at. Second time, I didn't pick up. Third time, I didn't pick up. Fourth time, I didn't pick up. He said, I finally picked up on the seventh time. My dad dragged out the conversation with he and I. And... That's when all of a sudden this thing happened. So I know for a fact my dad committed suicide. So it's not the Colombian victory. It's not the U.S. victory. So now you've been asked this question a million times. You've spoken in front of YPO, EO, government organizations here in the States, outside of the States. You've spoken to DA agents. You've spoken all over the world. And you probably get this asked all the time. What's your version of the answer? Okay, well, the, let's, let's address the second one first, whether it was a U.S. special operator, whether it was Delta Force or SEAL Team 6. I know that it wasn't because when the operation went down, as the, as the operation is taking place, I'm standing in the room with all the U.S. operators. Now, I'm certertainly not taking anything away from it. Javier and I love these guys to death. These are the guys. They were if, not there. They were at the base with me. And the reason I know is because I was there with them. Not taking anything away from them because these are the best guys in the world. If we're ever kidnapped. Every one of them was with you, Steve? Yep. yep. Right there in that room. And, and let me just interject. The orders was that they could not leave the base. And this is for coming from the Pentagon to the embassy. And these guys obey, they were at the base. And Steve was there, but I just want to put a caveat. They, they helped us. I mean, after Escobar gets in, they, they help us in a lot of the electronic messaging. A lot of training was done by them, but they could not leave the base. And that would upset them, but I mean, and like Steve said, these guys are great, great heroes. So to you, you're 100% there. It's not a Delta Force or SEAL Team 6. No doubt in my mind. No doubt in your mind that's and it. I, and believe me, we love these guys. Yeah. So yeah, we're not we taking anything away from so them. So you are set that you think the Colombian police is who killed him. Absolutely. Now let's look at that third theory about the suicide. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely not true. Javier and I were local police officers before we became federal agents. I went through the academy. I was trained on murder investigations, suicide investigations. I worked both when I was in uniform. So the, all the photographs that were taken of Escobar on the roof that day after he was killed, I took those photographs. My primary responsibility, my instructions from my boss back at the embassy in Bogota was to confirm this is Pablo Escobar. You got to get up close and personal to do that. The blood and the guts and the gore and things like that don't bother me for whatever reason. So I was able to get close enough to look at the body. When there's a suicide by a gun, when you fire a weapon, there are little pieces of gunpowder that come out the end of that barrel. 
they travel a certain distance before they lose their velocity and fall to the ground. If you shoot yourself in the ear with a gun, the gunpowder that comes out of that barrel is certainly going to travel that far and it will leave burn marks in the skin. You can go online and look at these photographs. Nobody has ever, I couldn't find them. There are no powder burns on the side That's of what Pablo's Martinez said as well. face at all. Yeah. So that tells me it wasn't a suicide. The third, so your first theory was the Columbia National Police. That's absolutely who it was. You know, we worked with these guys, we lived with them, never caught them lying to us about anything. What difference would it make? Let me ask you this. What, let's just say it's not the Columbia National Police. Let's say he committed suicide. If he did, would that take away the victory of you guys killing him and the victory goes to you? Is that, would, let's just say if it is, let's just say we come out and say this guy did kill himself. Would that make a difference? You know what? Yes, yes, yes it would. I appreciate you saying committed. that. Yes, I mean, it, it, it would because like I said, look at the long time you went after this guy. Look at all the people he yep. killed. Look at all the massacres, the violence, and then he committed suicide. That, that, like Steve said, that wasn't the case. It was the the search block, and not the regular Columbia yep. National Police. Colonel Martinez and his groups. Colonel Martinez was not there. Right. Yeah. And, and for the record, let me get my situation because I think in the movie, in the series, they put me. I'm getting disciplined back in mm -hmm. Washington. I want you know, the ambassador caught me up and sent me to Miami. There was a famous informant, Navigante, who had, he was the one responsible for Gotcha. How he got a hold of the ambassador, I, I think I know how. But anyway, so the ambassador calls me out of Medellin. Says, have you ever got on a plane, you're going to Miami? I said, sir, oh, because there's an informant that's gonna tell you where Escobar is, sir. We were very close. We're, you know, it was like the day before. You're telling him, sir, we're very close. Yeah, 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 we're very close, sir. He's not anywhere. They thought he was in Haiti. I said, he's right here in Medellin. And I get ordered. And ambassadors, this was a strong-willed ambassador. Ambassador's like a president. You know, he tells you, you will get on a plane. Or So I got on a plane. And ironic, it is great, because I, I get to Miami. And you know how I found out Pablo Escobar gets killed? How? The informant is on a phone. The guy who's supposed to tell me where Escobar was, he says, Javier, they just killed Pablo Escobar. Oh, <laughs> it's the irony. What is your reaction when uh, that happened? You know, of course, I was like, you know, and at least Steve was there. And you know what? He always had a camera. And, you know, anyway, those photos would not exist if Steve wasn't there. So I get on the plane back, and it's all the press people on that plane. I'll never forget the Univision, the Telemundo, you know, people I see, the anchors. It is full of press people coming back to, <laughs> to Colombia. Can you I imagine what, the next day, you know. Can you anyway. imagine what kind of field day they would have had with <laughs> no, Javier on the airplane if they'd known who he was? <laughs> but that, that's the irony. But you know what? I, I, I was happy, of course. You know, I went the next day. Steve was there. Congratulated everybody. Did you see the body? No, no. Never, never did. You know, talked to all the guys. Congratulations. You know what I'm saying? It, it was a victory for them, I think more for Colombia because of all the criticism that they got. It was a victory for us, for all the people he killed, all our friends. I lost some good friends. So it, it, it was a victory for everybody. I didn't have to be there. Like it's say uh, Steve was there, but you know, it was just something great. It was, you know, the weight of the world had been lifted on. You know, there was times, remember, when we'd say, man, I just hope he surrenders. Let's get her over. Let's all go home. It was that what, bad. What, so, so let me ask you, was there ever a feeling of, uh, was there, you know how you hear some stories, you know, I wanted to be a millionaire so bad, and then I became a millionaire. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a millionaire. So what? You know, oh, I want to win this so bad. And then so, to, so, to some, they're like, I don't know if it's going to feel that bad because I'm so much hungry about the chase and the hunt versus actually it becoming a reality. You feel like, now what? Did you ever have that feeling or was it like, 
finally we got this, you know, uh, uh, bastard, you can use a different word if you choose to, was there that feeling of, we got them? There was that feeling because it felt like the weight of the world was lifted off our shoulders. But, and, and we're not trying to be overly humble when we say this, that was one investigation. So when you complete an investigation, you move on to the next case. And that's exactly what we did. Once Escobar's gone, of course, I, my wife and I, we came back to the United States for Christmas vacation. You know, we came back to Bogota in early January. It's time to go back to work and work the next case. How much of a break did you have after, you know, December 2nd, Well, there was, there was a lot of uh, loose ends that had to be tied up, you know. So it took us several months. And I think we probably worked on it until I transferred out in June. And I left uh, in Navarro Tobol. But when we were there, there, there was a lot of pressure from the United States. Oh, from, you know, DOJ, from to you. DEA, to us, yeah. To it get was it done or to? To get it done, of course. You know, a lot of people don't know, but there was, uh, we'd get calls. Like, we, you know, I mean, we had to go brief people up in Washington. What would they tell? Like, how much longer do we need? And yeah. what is going on? Or, 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 and also, what else do you need? Right. What else do you need? They I mean, were supportive, but yeah. they wanted action. Yeah, they, and because everybody knew Pablo Escobar, the fight against him from the United States, there was a lot of pressure being put on us to go after Pablo Escobar, to get, to get him. Now, the picture, obviously the famous picture that you took, right? When you see that picture today, what's your reaction? I'm proud of it now. I mean, when I got there and was taking the photographs of the police officers, you know, standing over the body and then they start grouping up and want to group photos and, and I mean, Javier and I, these are our friends, you know, these are the guys that we faced death with and survived. You know, it's a very close bond with each other. And they're saying, Steve, Steve, come on over. Like, well, they actually call me Steak, Stick. And they're like, Steak, Stick, come and get your photograph. So I, you know, gave somebody a camera and got in there and got my photo. You know, probably not my proudest moment at the time, but that was the elation that everybody felt that felt that this guy did was. Did you get dead. some criticism for the pic or no? Oh yeah. <laughs> you did Washington was not happy about that picture. Washington at all. wasn't happy. Now was the Colombian government not happy or they could care less? It was mainly Washington. The cops were okay with it. I don't know about the rest of the government. So anybody it, that's a Pablo fan probably wasn't too happy about that picture being Yeah, and it was never meant to be released. Uh, somebody in the Columbia National Police released is how it got out. But um, you know, I don't have any remorse, I don't have any guilt feelings about it. The reason we're all smiling as pictures is because we all knew effective immediately at the second that Pablo died, every citizen in the country of Colombia is safer simply because one man's gone. And if you go back and do your research, you'll find out that the murder statistics support that theory. 80% is the number Almost I saw 80%. when I was, yeah, 80% the following year. Which because is, one man was gone. Can you imagine the power of one man dropping the amount of activity by 80%? It's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. What do you guys do? Is there a ritual you have every year on December 2nd? Do you guys do something on December 2nd every year? Drink a lot of beer. (laughs) (laughs) But is it a call like, hey, do you remember? We you have know, a, there's an, an intel analyst, analyst. An intel analyst who was assigned to Pablo Escobar. He sends them an email, happy anniversary. Every year. He yeah. commemorates it. Every yeah, year. And like you said, we do a, a, well, a shout out for our analysts because they did a great job. And when you go after this traffickers, you need that intel. It's not like, you know, in the movies, oh, I'm going, you need all that intel work to help you go after this. And, That's it. And thank you to Craig for that annual yeah. reminder. <laughs> yeah. Now, question out. to you. I asked you this earlier, but, but I, I want everybody also know this. Is from the outside, you know, when you watch it, uh, Narcos does a great job showing that you guys became very good friends. Till today, how strong is your friendship? How strong is the bond between the two of you? We, we talk pretty much every day. <laughs> we, we see each other. You know, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, last year we did 82 appearances around the world. I see Javier as much yeah, as yeah, I see my yeah, wife, yeah. if not so more. So family times. to you. Yeah, we're, we're oh, going uh, to Ireland here now. Yeah, we've got a UK tour coming up here for a two-week so, tour. Yeah. 
And have you yet seen the whole thing? Have you yet seen Narcos? Uh, uh, Not yet. I've seen the first series. I saw the third one. Number two, I'm still, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm still, I'll, I'll watch it. So yeah. still emotionally, you can't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just brings back, like you said, I, I lost some good friends of mine, you know, and uh, that, you know, and this is why when we say Pablo Escobar was a revenge, of course it was. I'll be lying if I. If You've it wasn't. said it in every single every time I, I study. You say keep it. saying that was a revenge. Like it was. And a, it's, and, I and, want and, to kill and, this guy. Yeah, yeah. We tell did, the truth. Yeah, did we, you want him alive or you wanted him dead? I wanted him dead. Yeah, me too. I do. Yeah, he would have. Anyway. Did the U.S. government want him alive, or they just they could care less? Just let's just, you know, yeah, we want this guy dead as well. Nobody uh, ever came out and told us. Nah, you yeah, know, kill him. Just do your job. <laughs> do your job. Also yeah. known as kill him is what you got to do. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I sit there and I watch your story, and I, you know, I'm always curious when I see somebody that becomes a DA agent and decides to go take your life. We were with Joe Pistone recently. Joe Pistone was Donnie Barrasco. He worked with the Italian mob, and he. Uh, work heavily on taking on the Bonanno family and partially the Colombo family. And for six years, he was undercover. And when I hear your story, you were married at the time. Your wife was living in Bogota, right? And you'd be gone. I think one time you said you were gone for five weeks to Medellin. You were away from your wife. How did you make that work? Because his marriage is still intact, Joe's, which I cannot believe. And apparently yours is as well. What was the secret? What system did you guys have to make your marriage work? I just married the right woman. You know, she was... <laughs> She understood the, you know, the, my desire for excitement, and you know, we were much younger, and and, uh, and we just liked exciting things. But you know what? She liked it just as much because when we were in Miami, you know, my, I had one partner there that was shot in a in a deal gone bad, and informant killed, and, and just a lot of activity going on in Miami in the '80s. And uh, after four years in Miami, she came to me one day. She said, this has been exciting. What's the next most exciting Seriously, thing we can do? That's amazing. And I threw out the idea of going to Columbia. It, it took her a little while for her to come to grips with it. But finally, she came one day and she said, if we're going to do it, let's do it while we're young. And when we were having lunch earlier today and I was, you know, Mari asked you, the producers, did they think it was going to be this big of a hit? as it became on Netflix? Well, I think the producers did, but Javier and I, we didn't think anybody wanted to hear this story. <laughs> we turned down a couple of producers before Eric Newman came along. So when we say, and we say this all the time, but it's absolutely true, no one is more shocked by the popularity of Narcos <laughs> yeah. than us. How but much did your life change when the documentary came out? Like pre-Narcos, after, not the documentary, the, the, the series, how much did your life change? 180 degrees, right? We, ne we never dreamt we'd be doing this in retirement. We didn't ever have the opportunity to meet you and the crew here if, yeah, if yeah. it weren't well, for the We're Narcos. traveling the world, we're traveling places we never would have gone. So it's had a, you know, very adverse effect, you know, from being uh, retired, doing nothing, and all of a sudden the series comes out. And I saw the first one, I said, no one's going to watch it, you know. And then all of a sudden, man, it wow, we're up. starting to, yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know what? You know, we got, we got to go speak in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. We went to Sydney, Australia, and we got to speak at the Sydney Opera House and sold it out. No yeah. way. I mean, this is, this is just out. like no things way. that are unbelievable in our lives. Melbourne sold that out. I mean, it's just been great. So New Zealand. It's, uh, but like Steve says, we tell, the, we tell the truth. Yeah, we tell the truth. Before we wrap up, uh, I do want to say this publicly, you know, to know that I'm sure many, many, many families in Colombia are glad that you guys put your life on the line to make sure uh, people are protected there. And there's an element of the way you deliver the messages. I, I can't believe how much respect and love you're given to a country 
like Colombia to have hope. You know, it's, it's very interesting to see America's known as this powerful nation that we like to take all the victories, we're this, we're this, we're that, and you're actually taking a completely different approach saying, hey, they did it, we're just a couple right. cops and you're taking this approach. And, and it's lot true. Of, lot yeah, of respect yeah, from me to you. A lot right. of respect from me to you. Appreciate you guys coming out. But this is, this is one last thing. What are you guys working on right now? So if I'm watching this and I want to follow some of your stuff, you know, what, what is something you're working on right now that people can follow and find out more about? Uh, well, actually, we've got several things working, but if you go to DEANarcos.com, you know, that's our website. You can see there's a calendar on there to show you where we're speaking around the world. We're writing a book. We're working with a group called the Lost Clipper Project, where we're working on an 80-year-old cold case file involving the murders of 15 Americans. We've partnered up with the uh, Partnership for Safe Medicines that is addressing counterfeit medications coming to the United States. We were on Capitol Hill three weeks ago talking to the House of Representatives Committee about that particular subject. We're working with a couple of producers on a potential new, and this is very potential, this is not a done deal, but a potential new TV series addressing the heroin, opioid, and fentanyl epidemic in the United States right now. So it's, there's a lot of irons in the fire. <laughs> it's things that, again, we just never thought anything like I this bet. would happen to yeah. us. So it's fun. <laughs> That's great. And, and you're on Twitter, DEA Narcos, and you're on Instagram, DEA Narcos. What I want you to do is I want you to send them a tweet. First of all, go follow them, and then send them a tweet, DEA Narcos, their handle, and let them know if you've watched the show and what do you love most about it and what you picked up from uh, today's interview. And with that being said, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming out here in Dallas. Thank appreciate you your time, truly. Really appreciate you guys coming out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.